0: you'll make your way to acts chapter 3 we'll begin by just a bit looking at acts chapter 2 at toward the end but working our way through acts chapter 3 today in 2 days our nation will elect a new president as minnesotans will also elect a senator numerous other officials at varying levels of national state and local government There's much at stake on Tuesday and I would certainly encourage those of you qualified to vote that you would do so. We cannot determine the election results but as citizens of a government by the people let us faithfully register our will and allow the rest to lay in the hands of God. I'm reminded at this season of the first presidential election that made any difference to me it was way back to the ancient days of 1976 when uh, Jimmy Carter unseated Republican Gerald Ford. I remember that distinctly to this day and distinctly where I was as I entered into the junior high school for classes the next day. And I will never forgetting being utterly overwhelmed with the feeling that our country was doomed to ruin. I don't know why... I'm not sure where I picked that up, but somewhere along the line, somebody had talked that way, and I believed them straight up. It was all over. Life as we knew it would end. I was just waiting for the disaster to come down and strike. Well, I praise God. A lot of gray hairs later, certainly, but there's much more to it. I praise God today that I'm not scared anymore. One reason is I've come to trust in something I didn't know about then, and that is the providence of God. I've come to believe the biblical revelation that God steers the course of history according to His sovereign will, and I can rest in that reality. Second, I've come to believe the biblical revelation that there is ultimately only one ruler in this universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has conquered every power and authority and He reigns at God's right hand over this universe. And He will return to rule every inch of this planet with absolute wisdom, with absolute power, and absolute righteousness. I believe this to the core of my being. It is to this kingdom and to the absolute assurance of its final conquest of all that is evil, that the followers of Jesus stake their confidence and their future hope. It's in this we rest. And in this confident hope, we are linking up with the ancient message of the Christian church. This is not a message that has developed over time. This is a message that was proclaimed right out of the gate in the very earliest messages of the followers of the risen Christ. We come back to Acts chapter 2 and remember Peter's sermon there. In light of Jesus' resurrection, what did Peter conclude? He said in chapter 2 and verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, referring of course to that baptism of the Spirit. This one lives. Jesus lives and He's poured out His Spirit here. In verse 41, there were those who responded I should mention verse 34 and 35 as well. This is all according to Old Testament prophecy where David said, the Lord said to my Lord, my future son is my Lord is how we are to take that and how the Jews did take it. He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is reigning. Jesus, there are those then in verse 41 who respond, they receive His Word, they're baptized, there are added to them that day about 3,000 souls. Then we come to verse 42 and following where we find an overview of the church's life and community together as the followers of Jesus, devoting themselves to the teaching of God's Word, devoting themselves to the cause of Christ, its proclamation and fellowshipping together in the work that Christ had given them, devoting themselves to the Lord's Supper, remembering the death of Christ until He returns, devoting themselves to prayer, to loving one another, and indeed even to great miracles that are being performed as the risen Christ continues to demonstrate His life through His church here. As we look at that concept in verse 43 of wonders and signs being done through the apostles, we might ask, I wonder what that looked like. What was going on here? As we come to Acts chapter 3, we have a picture of one of these scenes. And in this first section of Acts chapter 3, we find a lame man is healed by the power of the reigning Christ. And I think it's crucial to go into this section armed with that concept. It's the reigning Christ who heals this man. Jesus is alive. We pick up the account at verse 1 of chapter 3. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They're two hours of prayer early in the morning at 6 o'clock here at 3 p.m., which is called the ninth hour. They are going up to the temple area. They see no discrepancy between the temple worship and their worship of Jesus Christ at this place. Things will change along the way, and indeed the temple will be destroyed eventually in 70 A.D. But here, there's no discrepancy. They understand Jerusalem's temple is ground zero of God's saving purposes. They realize that Jesus is the Messiah God has sent to rescue Israel from her sin. And thirdly, they realize this temple is God's house. This is where they should be. And so they gather Here for prayer at 3 p.m., seeking to participate in this gathering, they approach the temple complex. When we read here, enter into the temple. They, of course, were not even permitted to enter into the building of the temple, but temple just means here that wide expanse with all of its courtyards and colonnades. They are entering into this place. You have a picture of it just as a model. Remember, this wasn't a photograph from the day but a picture, a model of the temple area. We have a reference here in verse 2 to their entering through the beautiful gate. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now the beautiful gate would have entered into the wall that you see in the very extreme foreground of this picture. To get a different take of it. This would be now on the outside of that wall. And uh, just, just notice carefully this first wall that is here. In this region here, we don't know precisely where the gate and the wall has been taken down, destroyed, but somewhere like this, a gate would have led them into this walled area. On the other side of this wall, underneath this roof here, is where much of this scene will take place, and the message that Peter preaches right behind this wall. On the other side, the front of it would have looked like these colonnades here, running along. And this is where Peter will enter through this gate. Peter and John, and this man is sitting down here somewhere, begging for alms. He would have been left to the mercies of the Israelite people. That's how they would care for such people. And it was a virtue to give alms, to give contributions to people who were in need like this. And they meet this man here. It's a well-trafficked gate, we learn from history, and, and indeed a very beautiful gate. It was named for a reason. This disabled man then would have found a very key place here as people are coming up for the time of afternoon worship and would have been there at the gate. And we have indication from the original text that he keeps on calling out to them in verse 3. In verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He keeps asking them. Perhaps they ignore him at first because they have no money. But at any rate, he gets their attention. In verse 4, Peter directed his gaze to him as did John and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, notice this man is not, he's asking for money, he's not asking to be healed. He does not know who these men are, apparently. He does not know what they can do for him, or as Peter says, it, what I have is the power of Jesus Christ. He doesn't realize this. He's just asking them for a contribution of money. Peter commands him to stand up, which I am sure was a stunning command to the man who had never stood in his entire 40 years on this planet. But he says, I want you to stand in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What does that mean in the name of someone? It's more understood to them than in our context today. But the idea of name is in accordance with the authority or the power of Jesus Christ. The rabbi from Nazareth. We're not talking about some myth. We're not talking about some magician that's out there. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Now where is Jesus of Nazareth? This one in whose name this one is supposed to stand up and be healed. Well, to many Israelites, they would have understood that Jesus of Nazareth was gone. He's the one that was crucified as a common criminal. There were those and the stories were already circulating that he had been stolen and buried elsewhere. And then perhaps the dogs had dug up his shallow grave and eaten him because no one could produce the body. But he's dead. What does Peter believe about this Jesus? Now think of this. There's a wedge thrown down here. This Jesus died in this city not very long ago. And he says, in the name of this one that was crucified on a hill right outside of town that everyone knows and was buried, in the name of this Jesus, rise up and walk. What does he believe? Verse 32 of chapter 2, God raised Jesus up. He is exalted at the right hand of God. That's what Peter believes about Jesus. So if Jesus is alive... There is the potential that he has the power to mediate this healing. Indeed, if he is alive, he's defeated death. And if he's defeated death, then he has power over disease, over physical ailment and disablement. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And I want you to think of something here. This man has not walked in 40 years. He never has walked. He's got no more idea how to walk than we might have to run a nuclear submarine. He's never done this. You might have seen a nuclear submarine making its way through the ocean, but you couldn't run one. He's seen people walking, he's never learned to walk. And just on a physical level, his muscles would have atrophied so far as to make walking impossible, even if things got straightened out physically through, let's say, surgery. But what we find here is something very different. He doesn't know what to do to walk. And so lending a helping hand, verse 7, Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. Interesting words here. Feet and ankles found nowhere else in the New Testament. They are fairly unique words that were usually used in medical context. This is a fairly careful physiological description that the physician Luke is giving to us. Remember, this is who he is. He's the Dr. Luke. And he lays out these fairly unique words to say this is what's happened to this man. He's describing how his legs have been made new. And the lame man, fully restored, wastes no time trying out these new legs. Verse 8, and I should add with this, and new ability, miraculous ability. Leaping, verse 8, up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So he passes through this gate, through the wall, into the temple courts, and he's jumping up and down for joy, lifting his voice in praise to God. He'd never been in there. He'd never walked in there before, had he? For two reasons. He'd never walked in there before because he couldn't walk. He'd never walked in there before because he wasn't allowed to get in. Because of his disabled condition, he was not able to enter into these courts, but now he comes in celebrating, jumping, rejoicing. Now, we can be happy for this guy. And I hope you are. I mean, what a joy it would be to see this man jumping and praising God and leaping with this new ability. We'd be happy for this man. And we can be thankful for Peter and John for having compassion upon him and using the power of Christ to heal him. But there is something much greater going on here. And that takes us back to where we started today. Perhaps you've already made the connection. What did we read? Let's go back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, as Andrew introduced that to us, he did well to say there is fulfillment in the life of Christ. There is future fulfillment in this passage. But this is a prophetic word, Isaiah 35, from the prophet Isaiah, centuries before Jesus ever lived. And he speaks about a future day, I think largely a day yet future to us, in which the Messiah will come and restore the physical Nature, restore nature to what it should be. Verse 1 of chapter 35, we read of the wilderness and the dry land that shall be glad, and the desert that shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Nature itself will leap and praise God, so to speak as Jesus, Messiah, comes and restores all things as they were. Now let's read further. In verse 5, "...then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped." Here it is. "...then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy." Now listen to this. We need to put this together with this prophetic background. What we find as Peter reaches his hand down and lifts this man up is the reality that the new messianic age prophesied by Isaiah here has dawned. It has broken in on this man with power. The fulfillment has become. There is a sense in which we've entered the final age. What we also find here with this man rising up is that Jesus is alive. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that this man is to get up and walk, and in the name of Jesus Christ, he does exactly that. Jesus lives. Now we live, don't we, in a fallen world. It doesn't take us much to understand disease, trials, Weaknesses, aging, conflict, tragedy, death. We live in that kind of a world. It's everywhere around us. It's cursed. It's fallen. Now here is a really depressing thought. But for people who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, one of their great hopes is politicians. It discourages you for them, doesn't it? And somehow politicians are going to fix policy so that our lives work. It isn't going to happen, folks. There's no hope in that. There's no joy in it. Occasionally, I realize things can be done legislatively that do bring us joy and our right and good. I understand all of that. But you think about pinning your ultimate hopes in this world on a politician. That's all some people have. we pin our hopes on the risen Christ who is coming back and will restore this planet to what it is meant to be. Who will take this fallen world and will transform it by His resurrection power. And as we think of that, at least in our hearts, if not physically, should we not leap and praise God? It's this Jesus that heals this man. Going back to Acts chapter 3. The Messianic age breaking in at this point and giving this man the ability to leap and to praise God. It's not only him who recognizes that something has happened, but verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. As we analyze the nature of miracles here, we find something very different than what normally passes as miracles in our day. In our day, people claim that miracles are happening all around them all of the time. But what we have here is not even someone getting fixed physically. What we have here is a power, a miracle of such force that the man has never walked, doesn't even need to learn how to walk. There's no atrophy in his muscles. He has been healed from something that he had in the womb. From birth, at least. That's the nature of this miracle. The other aspect to the nature of this miracle is the fact that no one doubts it. No one. There's nobody walking around and saying, "Ah, I don't know about that, I'm not sure that's the case, we can't really prove this medically, or the guy slips back into his lame state later on, No, this man is healed miraculously. In truth, he's jumping up and down, having never walked for 40 years. And no one doubts that a miracle has been done. No one. But what's also interesting is with this miracle, in the name of Jesus Christ, no one's saved. People are not brought to saving faith in Christ and to His Lordship by simply seeing miracles. Miracles don't save people. It's through the hearing of the message of Christ crucified and risen that salvation comes. And so Peter proceeds. And so we are reminded, as we consider this, that we, like Peter, do not have the power to do whatever we choose. But if we walk in faith, we have the power to do whatever Jesus wants to do through us by His Spirit. Jesus gives the apostles miracle-working power to authenticate their message, to demonstrate His authority. He gives us His Word and He calls us to go out with authority and to proclaim the Gospel in dependence upon His power, to open spiritually blind eyes with the message of Christ crucified and risen. And it is to that which Peter now returns. A man is raised up By the reigning Christ, now Peter preaches salvation in the name of this reigning Christ. There is the miracle that is followed by the message first beginning with explanation. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's astounded. So Coming through that gate and then quickly veering off either left or right into one of these colonnade areas, Peter realizes there's an opportunity to proclaim Christ here. And when Peter, verse 12, saw this, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? I love these questions. It's like, what do you think? Why are they staring at you? He's got their attention. He says, but you're looking at us as if somehow we have power. Here is the deflection of the glory. All the glory is centered on Peter and John, and he deflects it immediately to God. We're not the power source here, folks. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. These verses are rich. They basically just summarize the murder of Jesus Christ, and how it took place, but they are, they're very rich with words, names of Christ. There are many who argue that Jesus became God over time in the eyes of his hearers, who really just very slowly kind of came up with this gimmick to start saying that he was divine. What we're reading here is one of the first messages of the early church, and it's a high Christology. He is the righteous one. He is the author of life. Now think of this. This is a man saying this about a man who was crucified in this very town, just outside the gates. Was crucified as a common criminal, and he's saying he's the author of life. Early message in the Christian church. Everybody around here was around, was alive when Jesus was crucified. But the big issue here, as with chapter 2, is you killed Jesus, but God raised Him from the dead. Messiah. God sent Messiah to rescue you from your sins, to establish God's kingdom. This very servant you crucified. You handed Him over to Pilate. You press Pilate to crucify Jesus against his own wishes. And not only this, but you set the author of life aside on a path to death and you chose a murderer who takes life. You had one last chance. You could say, well, well, the, the ball got rolling, it went down the wrong way and there wasn't anything we could do to back off. No, you had a final chance. When Pilate gave you the chance to choose Jesus, A Barabbas, you chose one who takes life. You identified with a murderer and said, live. And to the author of life, you said, die. I want you to get something here, Peter says. You did that to God's servant. The word servant is understood to us. We have the word deacon, which means servant. We serve Christ in the church. We might even use it in a mundane sense of we serve a meal to someone. But you need to understand when the Jews heard this word, their skin started to crawl. Because this servant is the one that Isaiah prophesied as coming in the name of God. This servant. Think of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. This is God's servant. His Messiah who would come to rescue His people and give them life. Remember what we just read in Isaiah 35? This One who would come to restore nature. To bring life out of death. That's the One you killed. For centuries, God has been preparing you to receive this author of life. And when he came, you rejected him. And It fills them with fear, and it should. Verse 17, And now, brothers, says Peter, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Perhaps he says that so they don't just simply disintegrate on the spot. But when he says ignorance, he doesn't mean here what we might take to be an excuse. He might be reflecting the Old Testament texts, which speak of sins of weakness and sins with a high hand. A high-handed sin, shaking our fist in the face of God and saying, Curse me. And God will. And does. But there are sins of weakness, sins of self-dependence, sins of smallness, sins that are truly sins. Perhaps that's what he's saying here, is you sinned with ignorance. That is, you sinned with weakness. But in either event, God is extending mercy to them, isn't he? God is never chargeable with ignorance, and never is ignorance excusable. But he says to them, with this idea, God is extending grace to you. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He has fulfilled. Think of what this is saying to them. The servant that's been prophesied for these long ages has come and we killed him. But, yes, we do remember, Isaiah said this servant would suffer. And in a figurative sense, if not literally, they look down at their hands and they realize that they have blood all over them. They knew about this suffering servant and there had been struggles to interpret what this meant and who this servant was, if it was even a person or if it was Israel. They debated back and forth as to who this servant was. But now they're realizing this servant was Messiah. He was here. He came to give us life and we killed him. Now what? This is the one foretold by the prophets. So Peter now gets down To the heart of the matter. When he says, verse 19, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. This is the most merciful of messages. Repent. Admit that what you have done is wrong. Turn from it. You have crucified Jesus, the author of life. Repent and come to Him. Embrace Him. And your sins will be blotted out. This is the mercy of God. The idea of the Word is to expunge or completely erase our sin. And I wonder if your heart thrills when you hear that idea. Do you know the joy of sins forgiven by God's mercy? Do you know of this? Experientially, understand what it means to have my sins expunged. I don't care who you are or what you've done, or what depth of sin you have experienced, God is a God of mercy who stands and calls out, turn from your sin and receive my forgiveness. He does the forgiving. We receive His mercy. This is the offer to those who have crucified Jesus. Verse 20, he says, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. There's his message, the core of it. Now, try to bring yourself into this and work a little bit. We've got to catch this. These are crucial phrases. There's the times of refreshing. There is the return of Christ from heaven. And there is, thirdly, the restoring of all things. What, are they? what is he talking about? These are phrases pointing to the coming of Messiah to establish His millennial kingdom as prophesied in the Old Testament. There will be a refreshing of the soul, a refreshing of the times, a refreshing of rule. There will be the return of Jesus Christ from heaven. There will be the restoring of all things. we read of that in Isaiah 35. A revival of nature. A change of heart. A perfect rule in absolute righteousness. All of this to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. There is a fulfillment that has begun. You look at this man who's been restored. We have a man who's lame, leaping. But there is a fulfillment that is yet to come. A new age that will fully dawn. Acts 2 lands on which end? Acts 2 lands... In Joel 2, of fulfillment of prophecy, the Spirit of God has been poured out and has baptized you. Acts 3 lands on which end? It lands on the future. Though Jesus is alive and is ministering, pouring out His Spirit, healing this man, He's in heaven, He's at God's right hand, He has ascended. Nonetheless, there's a time when He will come back and fulfillment will be completed. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Verse 22, indeed, this should be obvious to you, because don't you remember? Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. This is a quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now again, the Jews had debated over a long period of time what this prophecy meant. But by the time Jesus was here, there had grown the belief that Moses was talking about Messiah. No one doubted that Moses was probably talking about Joshua. That was the prophecy that Joshua, one will follow you, Moses." But there came to be a sense that this is talking about someone else in its ultimate fulfillment, a new Joshua, a new savior, an ultimate savior. The Lord God will raise up for you, Moses says to the Israelites, a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. That man, says Peter, is Jesus. Nearly 1,500 years before Jesus was born. And this is then a very serious charge, isn't it? The one that Moses prophesied that long ago has come, and when he got here, you put him away. Listen to Him. You killed Him. But listen, whether you killed Him, or simply ignored Him, or never heard of Him, or worship other gods, or do not recognize Jesus for who He is, you need to repent. Moses said this one was coming. He has come. Repent. Other prophets spoke of him. Verse 24, All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. It's not just Moses, but Samuel, and following Samuel being the first formal prophet in Israel and the string of prophets. And he was instrumental in setting in motion what one has called the Son of David Christology. That is, he anoints David as king. Second Samuel is 7, There is the covenant with David that one of his sons will rule on the throne forever. And so, in a sense, this is all prophetically pointing to Messiah Jesus. So you know this in Moses. You know this in Samuel. You know this in all the other prophets. That's interesting here because Muslims, Islam, say that Deuteronomy 18 is referring to Muhammad. That when Moses said, a prophet will come from among you, it's talking about Muhammad. Well, anybody... On the face of the earth, could pick out one verse like that and say, That applies to me. I'm the prophet. But you see what Peter is developing here. No, 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 not, not one verse drawn out of a nebulous comment that Moses makes. We're talking the prophecies of Moses, the prophecy of Samuel, the Davidic covenant, all of the prophets who have followed, those that have pinpointed the place where he is to be born, those who have pinpointed the people through whom he is to be born, the town, all of these things, riding on a donkey as he comes into Jerusalem. We're not talking about one prophecy. We're talking about A consortium of prophets through the centuries who have pooled together and wound together various specific prophecies. Jesus is that one. He is God's servant. You, verse 25, are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here he is quoting Genesis chapter 12 where God says that very thing to Abraham. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And just for sake of edification and instruction, let's just look at Genesis chapter 12. Let's put our eyes on it. And remember, here's what God is saying to Abraham so many centuries earlier. Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram... Verse 1, Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every Jew surrounding Peter is saying, praise God, that's us. We are the people of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through the 12 tribes of Israel. We are those people God has so blessed us. Praise be to God. If you write in your Bible, I would write right next to verse 3, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. Galatians 3 and verse 8. Let's go there. What has God said to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, but in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. Promise to whom? The promise to Abraham. How is that promise fulfilled in respect to the Gentiles even? All families of the earth will be blessed. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. Here is a rabbi of Israel who is schooled in the Old Testament Text, here's what he says about Genesis chapter 12. And the scripture, Galatians 3 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Faith in whom? Verses 10 and following, in Jesus Christ crucified as God's curse fell on his head in our behalf. So verse 14, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There it is, the spirit, the word, the promise, starting with Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus, passed on to you. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to bless all nations through Abraham. The new age of the Messiah is rooted in these Old Testament prophecies, one after another after another, pointing to Jesus. He was the servant. You killed him. But he will forgive. And so, verse 26, he concludes, God having raised up his servant. Interesting phrase. Has raised up his servant as the idea of raising up, that is, presenting his servant, but obviously he raises him from the dead as well. He raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He came to rescue you from your sin. Now, I may be talking to someone who says, well, I'm not a Jew. This is 2,000 years ago. This is a long, long time ago. What on earth does this have to do with me? We need to place ourselves right where these Jews are that are hearing this message. Jesus is the King of this universe. He rules today from heaven's throne. He will one day crush every enemy and return to earth to set up His rule. You must ask yourself the question, am I on His side? Have my sins been removed? Have they been forgiven? Has Jesus cleansed me? Have I recognized Him for who He is? There is a day coming when every enemy will be crushed. But right now, God holds open arms, palms upturned towards you, and says, come, repent, believe. Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. What does it say to all of us in our setting, in our times, in our day? Well, we cannot determine results of Tuesday's election, but we can rest assured that God has already determined the first and the last ruler of the universe. People have tried through the ages to rule this planet, and no one has ever been able to do it. Many, many people have died in the attempt. There is one ruler of this planet It's Jesus. He's alive. He's ruling now. And he will come and establish his rule someday here. I know I can be misunderstood, but I, I hope you'll hear my words and read into them the right thing. But please understand like every other nation and kingdom of history, God has stamped an expiration date on the United States of America. We're not going intact into heaven as a nation. No politician or governmental agency is ever going to fix our deepest travails or preserve this nation against its inevitable ruin. Whatever that ruin looks like, however that matches up to the return of Christ, obviously, I do not know. But the Lord Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of this universe. He has conquered every power and authority. And He will return to rule every inch of this planet with absolute wisdom, with absolute power, with absolute righteousness. And He's not going to ask permission from the United States of America. Every presidency... Every nation, every kingdom on this planet is not only a prelude to the big event, we're in the way. Now, again, understand what I mean. It is, to one degree or another, the case that every nation is an enemy of the conquering Christ, He will rule. What matters is that we have submitted to His Lordship and that we invite that rule. And I ask you, are you submitting to the reign of Christ? Now, I'm not throwing out here the responsibility to vote, as some might take it. I'm not throwing out here the responsibility of what we can accomplish as a nation and how we have a responsibility to honor Christ as the remnant of His followers in this world, embedded in this nation. But let's not mistake it. Jesus will rule with absolute sovereign authority over all nations. There will be one king, one ruler, one reign over every inch of this planet. So to us as a church, as we respond to this kingdom, as we respond to this king, may we never forget in light of what we see here in Acts 3 that Jesus is our only power. He is our only power ultimately to change hearts. Hearts are not changed by money. They're not changed by gimmicks. They're not changed by politics. Only Jesus can change the heart. Reminded again of that account of Thomas Aquinas, a scholar. In the Middle Ages, who visited Pope Innocent II, one of the worst names that's ever been assigned on earth, he was anything but innocent. Not once, not twice. But Innocent II was there, found as Thomas visited him one day. There's Innocent, the Pope, counting his money. Had big, huge sums of money there, and he's counting through it, getting from his basically taxes on people and building up his kingdom. And he boasted, it is said, to Thomas, saying, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. To which Thomas is said to have replied, Truly, Holy Father. And neither can she now say, Arise and walk. I think we understand his point. And may we in everything we do operate in the power of and in submission to the authority of, of the reigning Christ. We do not have the power to do whatever we choose. We can't command heal people. We can't raise the dead because we just designed to do so. But we can do exactly what Peter and John did. They had the power of Christ. They had the will of Christ. They were doing what He wanted them to do. And we have that same power to do whatever Jesus wants us to do through His Spirit. Whatever that is. God knows in my heart how many times I've prayed for people to be healed and how many times I've indeed prayed over dead bodies and asked that they'd walk again. Because I know He has that power. but if that's not his will, that's not going to happen. And that isn't typically his will. He's about something far greater than simply bringing people to health. He's reigning to bring every enemy in subjection to him, and the last enemy that's going to fall is death, which means we're going to stay in a realm of death until he comes back. But having said that, we can go forward in the assurance. To go forward with courage into a fallen world, proclaiming the healing grace of Jesus Christ. Not so much for bodies, but for souls. And as He continues to demonstrate that He is alive, by pouring out His Spirit upon dead souls and giving them life, and as we live in assurance of His return to rule with splendor and wisdom and power, may we evidence to all that we are always walking and leaping and praising God in spirit. Because He rules. He's coming again. There are no ultimate fears in the heart of a believer in Jesus Christ. There is only a waiting for final victory. May He be praised. And may He calm our hearts until we meet Him. Let's bow for prayer. We praise You for the one, Father, who has broken into the darkness. We praise You for the one who is saving souls, who is healing twisted hearts, this shepherd of our souls. I pray for anyone who is separated from Christ and is still in the darkness and does not yield in heart in action to Christ, I pray for repentance, that it would visit them, bring them to change their hearts, and may they respond in obedience to your call. And for those of us who have embraced Christ as Savior, may we find in His rule courage and strength to go on and to never lose focus or heart, but to always be walking and leaping and praising God in our souls. May you bring this about in us. For Jesus' sake, to his glory and honor we pray. Amen.